0: This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, April 29th. I'm Rob Louie, And I'm
1: Virginia Allen.
0: Today, we are talking to Jake Sherman, the Politico playbook writer who has a new book called The Hill to Die On, The Battle for Congress and the Future of Trump's America.
1: We also share your letters and an inspiring story about a college athlete who has chosen hope over despair despite a serious leg injury.
0: Before we begin, we'd like to ask for your help to spread the word about the Daily Signal podcast. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share this episode with your family and friends. That will help us make sure that we are continuing to grow and reach more listeners.
1: Stay tuned for today's show, coming up next.
0: We are joined on the Daily Signal podcast today by Jake Sherman, senior writer at Politico and co-author of Politico's Playbook. It's one of my favorite political newsletters. I read it every day, and I'd encourage our listeners to subscribe. We're talking to Jake today about a new book he wrote with Anna Palmer called The Hill to Die On, The Battle for Congress and the Future of Trump's America. Jake, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. I appreciate you guys having me.
0: Well, first, congratulations on the success of your book. It's already a New York Times bestseller, and you and Anna have done a remarkable job uh, chronicling the first two years of Trump's presidency and the battles that have taken place in Congress. Tell us why you decided to write it.
2: It's a very good question. Um, We knew that Trump—I mean, let me even take a step back. We were approached to write a book about Congress. Uh, at the beginning of 2017, and Anna and I had kind of thought about this many times over the years. Uh, We thought about whether we can write an interesting book about Congress. We've always been convinced that Congress is the best story in the world, and we think it's the best story in politics, even more than the White House. And uh, when Trump got elected, we had a sense that it would be very interesting because it was clear he was going to not conduct himself as a a typical and ordinary uh, president. And uh, that's been clear. Now it was not clear to the the extent to which he would be able to do that in 2017. So we figured how the deals got done or didn't get done would be a fascinating story. So we started at uh, basically with election day 2016, ended with the shutdown, which was not planned, obviously at the end of uh, at the beginning of 2019, and and told the story not as a Trump story solely, but as a story about. Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi and the Freedom Caucus and kind of the the trials and travails and ups and downs uh, uh, contained within those characters. So we took a different task, uh, which was to not focus maniacally on Trump, as a lot of folks have done, but but through Congress's eyes.
1: Absolutely. So, Jake, uh, based on your reporting, what are some of the biggest changes that you've observed in Washington during Trump's presidency?
2: So a few things. It's a good question. A few things. Number one, uh, I think the and this is not a major theme of the book, but it came up time and time again, the role of cable of cable news in the Trump administration and shaping both his view and the policies that he supports. I mean, we have several instances throughout the book where Sean Hannity of Fox News was acting as a an informal advisor both to the President and to Republicans on Capitol Hill. That's basically unheard of. It's not I'm not saying it's criminal or anything. It's just not typical for another administration uh, in other time. That's probably one of the big ways uh, things have changed. Also, as has been reported a million times, the extent to which the President is talking to just many, many, many people all the time is fascinating. I mean, imagine if you're a CEO of a company and you're calling up, you know, dozens of people before you make a decision throughout the company. And and that's kind of what the president does. Um, I think those two of the major changes and and one thing that I've kind of observed uh, secondhand since the book has been released is, you know, mostly in places like New York and L.A. and and uh, uh, on the coast, people always ask me, when are Republicans going to be happy when he's gone? And the thing that I and your listeners might sympathize with this, the thing that I don't think a lot of people understand is that there's a whole country besides the coast where the president is exceedingly popular. And that's reflected on Capitol Hill, or at least was between 2016 and 2018. So this is not a uh, uh, Trump fan book. It's not a Trump uh, hate book. And there's been a lot of those two things, which I think sets us aside.
0: Well, and we certainly appreciate that that reporting that you've done. Uh, you know, Robert Novak is uh, one of the people who I look to when I was getting my start in reporting, and I, I love the fact that he was able to bring that insight, much the same way that uh, that you and Anna do in in playbook every day, and you do as well in this book. You know, one of the things that you write is that during those first two years of the Trump administration, Congress gained power, but you say shrank in its willingness to exercise it. How do you see that changing now that Democrats control the House? And is there a greater appreciation for Congress's Article One responsibility today?
3: Well,
2: I would say a few things. And what we meant by that is Congress gained in power because there was a president who didn't really understand Washington or government, really. And, you know, there's a great, it's not me saying that, that people like Mitch McConnell told me he basically didn't know what how Washington worked in any way, shape, or form, which, by the way, allowed McConnell to um, uh, reshape the judiciary. But when we, when we say and shrank it in its willingness to use it, at times it had the opportunity to, for example, shore up Robert Mueller's investigation. It did not do that. Uh, but going forward, I think it's quite clear that, that the legislative branch and uh, the oversight responsibilities and, and um, powers that Congress has are going to be used more than ever. And we see that. I mean, we see now that the Democrats are considering using penalties, fiscal penalties, monetary penalties for people who don't testify to their liking or fork over documents. I mean, I think we're about to see a major sea change in Congress's power and how it uses it. And I would say the president vastly in my reporting would show vastly underestimated how bad a democratic house would be for him. Uh, Uh, he told us in an interview in the Oval Office, he was, you know, Republicans were too nitpicky when it came to uh, controlling the House. They had too many changes to legislation. He didn't appreciate that. Now he has a Democratic House who he thought he would be able to work with based on his relationship with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. And he finds himself under a barrage of very serious investigations. And uh, I don't think he anticipated that.
1: Absolutely. Jake, you write about the government shutdown in the book, how that happened and the fallout. In both cases, President Trump squared off against Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senator Chuck Schumer. What did you learn about their relationship? And is there any chance of them working together on legislation?
2: Well, I would say I learned a lot. And, um, uh I was eager to learn a lot because it's a very unique relationship. I will. Let me start backward, kind of. In 2017, the president, as as many of your listeners will remember, uh, cut a deal with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi to keep the government open in in place of cutting a deal with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, who had a different issue. And we make the case in the book that that deal that he cut to keep the government open for three months, fund uh, lift the debt ceiling for three months and, and provide disaster relief. For places like texas uh led to a lot of the border squabbling that we saw over the years so i think the president appreciates the flair he gets the coverage he gets for cutting deals with democrats number one so number two uh he has a reverence for nancy pelosi that he does not have or did not have for paul ryan i would say for sure uh he doesn't understand why democrats stick together so much better than republicans and he said as much to us on the record he said democrats Think with their policy they're bad politicians but they stick together and Republicans do not and he he likes Pelosi he actually had planned to convince the freedom caucus to support Nancy Pelosi for speaker if she fell short with Republicans which is a stunning statement and a lot of your listeners will appreciate that that I mean that's unheard of the Republicans have spent hundreds of millions of dollars uh, uh, trying to prevent Nancy Pelosi from taking back the majority so uh, I would say that there are I was optimistic that he would cut deals with Democrats. I had been since 2016. I don't believe right now there's the climate to do so for many reasons, chief among them that the president is exercising his power, and we'll see how much power he's able to exercise in preventing uh, Democrats from talking to people, members of his, his administration and getting documents that they deem pertinent. That is going to be a huge battle, both legislatively politically and legally i would imagine so i would imagine that the the cost of nancy pelosi trying to cut deals with donald trump goes up exponentially if she's if he's unable and unwilling to participate in oversight of his, in his administration
0: i want to follow up that and follow up on that in my next question you know much of the tension with democrats over those two years uh, has centered on immigration and border security we're now hearing that Jared Kushner, who's referenced throughout the book, is working on a plan. Uh, how much influence does Kushner have with the president? And do you see any potential for him to repeat the success that they had with criminal justice reform on an issue like immigration?
2: Rob, as you know, Republicans have been for criminal justice reform for many years. And you'll remember Paul Ryan in late 2016 uh, had a deal basically cut with Barack Obama to do something similar on criminal justice reform. So. A lot of Republicans and Democrats believe Jared's prowess when it came to criminal justice reform was a little bit overstated because he convinced Republicans to do something that Republicans were already willing to do. That's number one. Number two, Jared obviously has huge influence with the president. Uh, He's his son-in-law. He's a trusted advisor from what we could see. Jared also uh, uh, doesn't really, in, in my reporting and according to Republicans who are in the room with him, does not really grasp the issues on immigration reform as he would need to, to cut a deal. That's not my assessment. That's Republicans who he's worked with their assessment. Uh, he, he, in the in the beginning of the shutdown, said, I'll be able to quickly solve this, and then proceeded to convince the president to negotiate with Democrats. And of course, he negotiated with Democrats, and he had to declare a national emergency. So he's not as savvy as, as maybe he thinks he is when it comes to immigration reform. I would say uh, there are two sides to this issue. I, we make the argument in the book that Democrats were completely disingenuous when it came to the border wall and opposed it because it was Donald Trump's border wall. Uh, Democrats had approved the border wall many times before in different forms. But Donald Trump made the border wall about himself. And uh, Democrats were then incentivized to oppose it. That's kind of how it went in 20 uh, at the beginning of this year. So I'm skeptical because I'm a skeptic because I'm a reporter that uh, uh, immigration reform will happen. I think the two sides, frankly, just have way, way different views on immigration reform. Jared Kushner is not going to bridge those gaps, which are basically defining gaps between the two parties at this point. And I I just I'm, I'm a bit skeptical that he'll be able to do that.
1: Jake, you had the opportunity to speak with the president. What insight did you gain from talking to President Trump directly and given his hostility towards the press? what is he like one-on-one?
2: I think his hostility toward the press is obviously disappointing to members of the press, but he still, I mean, we see he just spoke to the Washington Post, Bob Costa, for a story, uh, uh, you know, about uh, oversight of his administration. He speaks to reporters all the time. Uh, obviously, he sees it politically expedient or politically benefiting him to uh, to stoke a war with the press, but that's his choice. It's disappointing because we live in a country where freedom of of the press is of such huge importance and such a defining characteristic of our country. So it's a little bit befuddling to me how, uh, uh, why he does that, but that's that. Uh, I-, I thought he was a lot more uh, engaged in the kind of rough and tumble of D.C. politics than I had expected, and I don't mean that I didn't expect him to be engaged in politics. He's obviously the president because he's a pretty good politician, but I didn't anticipate that he would understand the characters and the palace intrigue as he did Uh, uh, the the tension between Jim Jordan and and Kevin McCarthy or Nancy Pelosi's inability or uh, uh, her quest to become speaker again. All of those things were really interesting to me, how he was very tuned into those dynamics. And a friendly guy who he's a friendly guy who uh, I would say uh, enjoys. Basically, my assessment was he would be talking to the press all the time if it were up to him. And obviously, he has gripes with the coverage, but so does every president. Nothing to do with that. So um, uh, those are my kind of general impressions of of dealing with him.
0: We're talking to Jake Sherman, co-author of the book The Hill to Die On, The Battle for Congress and the Future of Trump's America, Now, Jake, uh, from our own reporting at The Daily Signal, we know what a whirlwind it's been since President Trump was elected in November 2016. Uh, As you reveal in the book, there's been quite a bit of tension between the conservative House Freedom Caucus and uh, Republicans in leadership in Congress. Uh, Based on your reporting, who has a bigger influence on President Trump today? Is it someone like a Congressman Mark Meadows or Jim Jordan who lead that Freedom Caucus or the Republican leadership of Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell?
2: So we have an interesting dynamic now because at the, in the last Congress, Meadows and Jordan were foils to Paul Ryan and disagreed with him on a lot. And, and in the end, the president sided with, with Meadows and Jordan, which led to a, shut, a government shutdown over immigration. Now he has a lot of trust in Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy is a close ally of his, as are Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan. And I think the relationship between Meadows and Jordan is no longer, and the president is no longer as important as it once was. Um, because the Republicans are out of the majority. Uh, but for those two years, between 2016 and 2018, the House Freedom Caucus, the 20 or so members, depending on the issue of the House Freedom Caucus, were the most important people in Washington and perhaps some of the most important people in the country, because they had veto power over any legislative issue. So uh, but today, I would argue that McCarthy and, and McConnell are have a little bit more sway than Jordan and Meadows. Jordan and Meadows do play an important role, though. They are the president's defenders on the Judiciary and Oversight Committee, and that's incredibly important.
1: You've you've mentioned the influence that Sean Hannity wields with President Trump. Who else like him is is influencing the president behind the scenes?
2: Well, there's nobody who's quite like Hannity in my based on my reporting. I mean, we have a couple instances in the book and I'll mention two of them. Uh, he was on a conference call on health care reform, uh, that Sean Hannity was, with Paul Ryan and Mark Meadows. I mean, we've never kind of seen something like that before, or at least not in my experience. That's incredibly uh, odd. And uh, uh, I know because I was there that Sean Hannity was talking to members of the Freedom Caucus during the government shutdown and they were swapping ideas, swapping strategy, that's very, very um, uh, unusual. I mean, I I, don't, I can't remember, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but I can't remember Rachel Maddow on the phone with President Obama during health care reform or anything like that. Perhaps it was happening and we missed it. But um, I, I would say there's no parallel to Sean Hannity, maybe Lou Dobbs, who the president obviously appreciates uh, uh, his views on immigration and other things of that nature. But Sean Hannity is really a singular figure for President Trump.
0: And, Jake, finally, I want to ask you, you know, you've been reporting on Capitol Hill now for 10 years, and you're also an NBC and MSNBC contributor. Uh, you've earned a lot of respect and credibility for the work and reporting that you've done. What is your advice to those who are getting their start in journalism today?
2: I work hard because there's nothing really that um, that uh, replaces hard work. I would say uh, a few things. I would say, and I'm guilty of this, too. Don't spend too much time on Twitter because it's a pretty poisonous place. Uh, but I would also say that uh, there's really no plus if you're a, 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 a kind of an even reporter for a news outlet. There's no plus in picking sides. There really isn't. I mean, my entire career has been covering House Republicans. The media is viewed as liberal. I, I My job is not to choose sides. My job is to adequately and accurately reflect what the views are of the people I'm covering and and inject skepticism where necessary. But there's no reason to uh, uh, be a partisan in a a nonpartisan environment. It's just not worth it. Um, And if you can't get both sides to talk to you, you don't have much coin in this business. And uh, I, I would say be there all the time. I mean, I spend 12 to 14 hours a day in the Capitol and that's how people get to know you. and People get to trust you when you're talking to them, when you don't need something. So that would kind of be my top-line advice.
0: Well, that is really great advice, and uh, I I think that it's it's something that is certainly a – Lost art. Um, as as reporters today look for perhaps easier ways to go about getting stories, but there's nothing better than I agree with you showing up, being there in person, talking to people directly face to face. And also, uh, you're not the first person on this show who's had that advice on Twitter. So hopefully, uh, people yeah. take takes take insight from it and uh, and be mindful. Again, uh, we're talking to Jake Sherman. He's the co-author with Anna Palmer of the book "The Hill to Die On: The Battle for Congress and the Future of Trump's America." I encourage our listeners to check it out. Also, subscribe to Politico Playbook, the newsletter that he writes seven days a week. Jake, thanks for being on the show today.
2: Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it.
1: Do you own an Amazon Echo? You can now get the Daily Signal podcast every day as part of your daily Alexa flash briefing. It's easy to do. Just open your Amazon Alexa app, go to settings and select flash briefing. From there, you can search for the Daily Signal podcast and add it to your flash briefing so you can stay up to date with the top news of the day that the liberal media isn't covering.
0: We will now hear from our colleague Genevieve Wood, who has a new commentary on immigration. As the issue continues to dominate the headlines, Genevieve outlines the four principles that should guide an immigration reform proposal. Here she is.
3: Immigration is one of the fundamental building blocks that help make America the unique nation that it is. But the debate over border security and immigration has become toxic because politicians have put politics before principles. And reasonable Americans find themselves trapped between zealots on both sides. For over two centuries, the United States has welcomed millions of people from every corner of the globe. And today, we lawfully admit over one million people every year. That is more than any other country in the world. The debate is not about whether we should allow immigration, it's about how we should do so in a way that protects American sovereignty, respects the rule of law, and is beneficial to all Americans. So what does a thoughtful agenda for American immigration reform look like? Here are four guiding principles. Number one, we must respect the consent of the governed, that is, the will of the people. Individuals who are not citizens do not have a right to American citizenship without the consent of the American people. That consent is expressed through the laws of the United States. Through those laws, we the people invite individuals from other countries under certain conditions to join us as residents and fellow citizens. Number two, we cannot compromise national security and public safety. Every nation has the right recognized by both international and domestic law, to secure its borders and ports of entry and control what and who is coming into its country. A disorganized and chaotic immigration system encourages people to go around the law and is a clear invitation to those who wish to take advantage of our openness to harm the nation. Secure borders, especially in a time of terrorist threat, are crucial to American national security. Number three. Becoming a citizen means becoming an American. We must preserve patriotic assimilation. The founding principles of this nation imply that an individual of any ethnic heritage or racial background can become an American. That's why we have always welcomed immigrants seeking the promises and opportunities of the American dream. Patriotic assimilation is the bond that allows America to be a nation of immigrants. Without it, we cease to be a country with a distinct character, becoming instead just a hodgepodge of different groups. If we are to be a united nation, living up to our motto of a pluribus unum, out of many, one, we all must understand and embrace a common language, history, and civic culture. And that not only benefits America, but also those immigrants and their families who aspire to prosper here. Number four, Our lawmakers must respect the rule of law and immigration is no exception. Failure to enforce our immigration laws is unfair to those who obey the law and follow the rules to enter our country legally. Those who enter and remain in the country illegally should not be rewarded with legal status or other benefits. When politicians condone such behavior, they only encourage further illegal conduct. Based on these principles, immigration reform should include transitioning to a merit-based system. We should end practices like chain migration, birthright citizenship, the visa lottery, arbitrary per-country immigration caps and any form of amnesty for those here illegally. We must close loopholes that prevent enforcement of our laws and have overwhelmed immigration courts, allowing illegitimate asylum claimants and other lawbreakers to remain in the U.S. indefinitely. And we must take on these issues one by one. A comprehensive deal subjects the fate of policies with universal appeal to the fate of the most controversial topics. The key is to begin by working on the solutions on which most Americans agree. We must and can address this issue in a manner that is fair, responsible, humane, and prudent. This is too important an issue to not get right and too important an issue to be driven by partisan agendas. Let's stay focused on what is best for the welfare of all Americans, both those of today and those of the future.
0: Do you have an opinion that you'd like to share? Leave us a voicemail at 202-608-6205 or email us at letters at dailysignal.com. Yours could be featured on the Daily Signal podcast. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show and in our Morning Bell email newsletter. Virginia, who do you have up first?
1: Elizabeth Crane writes about the Electoral College. We need to keep the Electoral College. Who wants California and New York telling the rest of the country what they can do? States like Vermont and Wyoming would have no say in an election with the popular vote. Our founding fathers knew what they were doing when they set up the electoral system. We've got to start educating people on the Electoral College. It is not taught in schools anymore.
0: Well, thank you for that letter, Elizabeth. We also have one from Joseph Morrow, who adds... We must keep all of the checks and balances in place that prevent democracy from going to its otherwise inevitable extreme, mob rule. Repeal the 17th Amendment while you're at it, so that the Senate shall no longer be under the control of the mob population centers in the states. Having the state governments themselves elect our senators shall ensure that each state is properly and directly represented in the Senate again, per our original Constitution. Let us never forget what the Great Compromise was all about.
1: Your letter could be featured on next week's show. Send an email to letters at dailysignal.com or leave a voicemail message at 202-608-6205. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? If you want to understand what's happening at the court, subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court.
0: Virginia, you have an inspiring good news story to share with us today.
1: Yeah, thanks, Rob. Many of you have heard of McKenzie Melton, the University of Central Florida's all-star quarterback who led his team in a 23-game winning streak. But on November 23, 2018, all that changed in an instant. McKenzie was tackled by a University of Southern Florida player. The helmet of McKenzie's opponent crashed into his knee Causing it to be dislocated and tearing his LCL and PCL. Those are two of the four major ligaments attached to the knee. In an interview with iHeartRadio, Radio, Mackenzie remembers the moment of his injury.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean it was all kind of like surreal in that moment because like when something like that happens, you don't you don't know how to like react. Like it wasn't like extru- excruciating pain. Like I think just a lot of adrenaline, just being in shock and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Sure, but I mean it's. It's surreal, like, having both sidelines clear. Yeah. Um, Pastor John Evans, our team chaplain, come and pray over me. Like, you know, that kind, of, that kind of moment feels like a dream.
1: In the locker room, medics tried to find a pulse in McKenzie's leg, but they couldn't find one. He was rushed to the hospital, and it was discovered that he had also popped an artery in his leg, an injury that 50% of the time results in the leg being amputated. His family, friends, and teammates all began to pray.
2: We just prayed, you know, for complete healing. And, you know, the next MRI read, ACL was perfect, the MCL was perfect, both meniscuses were perfect. Somehow the hamstring was back attached. It it was divine intervention. Doctors can't even explain it.
1: It was a miracle that McKenzie's leg was saved. Now more than ever, he's determined to play again. Maybe even in the 2019 season. He has been using his time on the sidelines to act as a coach and voice of encouragement to his teammates, and even to men all across the country. Earlier this April, McKenzie spoke to thousands at the Better Man event in Orlando, Florida. He told a story of recovery and becoming a better man himself as he seeks to love his guys from the sidelines. In an interview with ESPN, McKenzie said, I feel like I got hurt for a reason. Something good's going to come out of it. Rob, and I think that we're already seeing a lot of good come out of this as McKinsey's taking the opportunity off the field to speak about his journey of faith and recovery in in order to be an encouragement to others.
0: He certainly is. Well, thanks for sharing that story, Virginia.
1: Absolutely. We're going to leave it there for today. The Daily Signal podcast comes to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation.
0: You can find it on the Ricochet Audio Network along with our other podcasts. All of the shows can be found at dailysignal.com slash podcasts.
1: You can also subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to listen every weekday by adding the Daily Signal podcast as part of your Alexa flash briefing.
0: If you like what you hear, please leave us a review or give us feedback. It means a lot to us and helps us spread the word to others.
1: Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and facebook.com slash the Daily Signal News.
0: The Daily Signal podcast will be back tomorrow with Kate and Daniel.
1: Have a great week. You've been listening to The Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.
0: What the heck is trickle-down economics?
1: Does the military really need a space force?
2: What is the meaning of American exceptionalism?
1: I'm Michelle Cordero.
2: I'm Tim Descher, and every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level.
1: Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues.
2: So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today.